This is the podcast between an old school mentor and a digital mentee on managing and or working with people, navigating a career, growing profits, and not killing your coworkers along the way. Now let's join the consultant, Hayden Shaw, and the millennial who fixes Hayden's iPhone, Seth Tower Heard. I guess Skype only allows you to clap three times. <laughs> We're just going to keep that as the intro. This is the show about growing and marketing management and not killing your coworkers along the way in corporate, family business, or nonprofit settings. My name is Seth Tower Heard, um, syndicated broadcaster, entrepreneur, and um, sometimes journalist. He's Hayden Shaw. He's helped over 30,000 managers at a whole bunch of companies you've heard of. Um, we're going to be talking a, a little bit about a whole lot you've never heard of, and a whole lot you've never heard of. We're going to be talking about uh, why projects launch late, um, and everybody has some kind of project management type of uh, a thing going on. I mean, uh, even if I was trying to think if you could work without having to need some sort of project management skill, and I was like, well, maybe if you're a novelist, but now that still has to get done in a certain time, and you still have to work with some people. So. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. I'm in National Speakers Association here in Chicago with a woman whose kind of niche is helping writers actually write. So she teaches project management skills, very highly customized project management skills to writers because she puts out about five books a year, five novels a year. Holy cow. Okay. <laughs> As somebody who's, you know, played in the journalism space quite a bit, I um, would say that there's a lot of quote unquote professionals that could really use that skill. So, uh, by the way, thanks to Hayden this week. I'm just going to lay this out there. Uh, I just had my second best month ever uh, as a business owner. And then I told Hayden I was going to quit and that we were going to shut the podcast down um, because I was being insane for a moment of delirium of not sleeping for more than four hours for a week straight. And he was like, maybe we shouldn't do that. So we're not quitting. That's that's the announcement for this episode. We're not quitting. And I'm less crazy than I was four days ago. I was just like, I'm done. I'm done. We need to stop doing this. It's stupid. Nobody cares, including all those thousands of people who listen every week. None of them care. This is dumb. I'm embarrassing okay, myself. Okay, well, no, I'm now I'm now officially changing the topic. There is no way we can introduce why projects fail with that kind of thing. All the listeners are like, really? I was starting to like this show, and Seth is considered quitting. So now the topic, Seth, is how do you know when to quit and when not to quit? Okay, when and let's do. Can we do projects next week then? Because that was a good intro. Is that okay? Yeah, Our next episode? Okay. So you can just cut the same intro and use it over again. It's a great intro. But yes, let's change topics after an, after you uh, after you switch gears like that. Because my guess is there's some people like, all right, what's going on? And um, and that's the best part about a podcast with two people is when it's human and not just about topics. And so that was a very human way to switch gears, which is I was going to quit. Now I've had my second best month ever, and now I'm not going to quit. Well, I um, knew I had my second best month ever when I said I was, was quitting. also telling him he just needed sleep and he shouldn't quit. Yes. She told me to, like, eat, drink water, sleep, and I probably would feel like I wasn't going to die, which wound up being the case. Yeah, so this is especially relevant for all the entrepreneurs out there who have times when they're like, why am I doing this? And it's especially prevalent, and, and then it has some real application for everybody who's got to make major life decisions. And so, how do you know when to? How do you know when it's a good decision and when it's a bad decision? And everybody says, follow your heart, be true to yourself. And there are some times when you're not be true to yourself. It's, um, you know, it, it's just the sleeplessness or uh, an old joke. It's the wine talking. 
I don't really love you. It was just the wine talking. And so the uh, and so how do you know what's talking when you're trying to find your authentic self? There is a huge burden today on making decisions based on your authentic self. Yes, I, I want to set up just a little bit more of this episode before we actually dive into the content. Um, by the way, the uh, if there's two things I hate about um, like 2018, it's the term self-care because everybody who uses the term self-care actually doesn't work very hard and therefore are the last people to need downtime. Uh, and then the whole live your truth thing. Um, facts are facts and usually live your truth means that you just you know, ran off with somebody and left your kids and stole all your money from your business partner to make it happen. But it was your truth. Uh, and, you know, you, you slashed and burned your way out of town and hurt 37 people. But it was your truth. So I, I hate those two terms. Uh, well, all right. I, and and for those people who are listening to this going, I just used both of those sayings in the last two days. Um, it really does tie to the idea of should I how do I make a decision about what I'm doing? everybody ought to live their truth. The research shows that we're happier when we live our truth. The research shows 40% of us are lonely and over half of us feel like we can't be our true selves at work. That is a huge challenge for businesses and organizations. And it's a key piece to engagement. And at the same time, um, Seth is exactly right. I've seen all kinds of behavior that is harmful um, and has classically been considered immoral. Um, and people say, well, I just need to, I need to live my truth. Um, no, Rihanna, you need to get out of relationships with people who are abusive to you. Yeah. That's yeah. what you need to do. Um, Sorry. Yeah, and let me let me set up one more place I want to go before the plane lands at the end of this episode. Um, I do want to talk about projects that somebody else believes is a good idea that you're stuck with, which can happen in family business corporations and nonprofits where you're going... Nobody thinks no. This is nobody decision, but one leaders and it's not going to work. And no matter what we do, it's not going to work. And that's just one of the worst places to be. But first, let's just talk through the actual decision making. I tend to be a pretty gut feeling kind of guy. Um, and, you know, I know that as the company grows, I need to build a team around me of people who aren't like me um, who are going to push back. Actually, a, a company we both worked with. I was doing video at yesterday. I love what one of their managers said. They said that, you know, we've been together for 10 years. We come in here and we fight like crazy sometimes, but we're all really different. And that's what's kept us on the straight and narrow. Uh, I, I love that decision making process. Um, and to go back to our conflict session, if you didn't listen to the podcast on conflict styles, Seth is a, in classic Thomas Kilman, a sturdy battler. So for Seth to actually get into the pool, with uh, and the shark is the uh, is the uh, metaphor animal of the sturdy battler. So to get into the pool with other people and but to be a reform shark, kind of think of Dora, where you're not eating other fish. So you're not going to eat them, but you like a good rough and tumble. Um, that makes complete sense. Like that decision making style would appeal. And what it says is, I you know nobody should trust their own true self until you've had enough time to find out if that really is your true self. And it makes sense in political reality. So if you haven't heard the podcast on politics, um, also, that's kind of a, a shout out to that podcast because it ties uh, finding your true self ties to politics because we usually want to find our true self when we've had it up to here with uh, politics. And, oh, by the way, uh, he's, he means office politics, not national politics. Um, so that, that's two previous episodes. You, you didn't. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Uh, office politics. I've, I've just kind of blanked out real uh, larger politics 
um, as a way of coping with reality. Okay. So a lot of people um, are in situations where maybe if you're in a small to medium-sized company, you may not have a bunch of other managers or leaders to bounce things off of. Uh, You may have people below you, but I also think that a lot of times it's not helpful to, you know, flesh things out or to, um, you know, get in the mud too much with your the people you're actually leading or the people who report to you. So if you're the warehouse manager, I don't think you want to grab a guy off the forklift and say, okay, so here's what I'm thinking about the next quarter as far as sales go. And this is my concerns. And he's like, I just want to drive the forklift. I I think it's weird when managers get insecure and pull people into conversations that they're not ready for and don't have the experience for yet. So let's first start with, if you feel lonely. No, no, I'm going to stop here because it is the consultant and the millennial and generational stuff is what um, it's kind of a sub theme of this podcast. One of the things that get that, as a matter of fact, I was just um, with uh, a dairy producers association on Tuesday, and the afternoon session was on how do you succeed as a younger person in the dairy industry, which has, as you'd imagine, a lot of people who've been doing it for 30 years and have a big old milk mustache um, all the time that they, you know, that they're required to perpetually wear. Um, one of the bits of advice I had was the chain of command. And one of the big criticisms that older generations have is, you know, a lot of times younger generations, uh, the millennials, younger Xers, and now this new generation in the workplace I call connectors, they often violate the chain of command. The problem is managers can often violate the chain of command. The chain of command protects people because the last thing I want to know is that my boss is having a moment. Yeah. Last thing I want to know, I always joke about it, is the CEO comes along and goes, I got a board meeting. I'm supposed to have a vision. Do you have a vision handy? I haven't had time. I've been really busy. Those things scare the horses a lot. Yeah. Uh, General Grant doesn't believe we're going to win the Civil War, but now I'm going to go out to die. That almost that was the biggest issue. Sorry, I've been reading a lot of Civil War history. That was the biggest issue the Union forces had for the first year and a half of the war is that the troops didn't believe the generals were going to keep people from dying and unnecessarily. And so, yeah, all of that, Seth, is great stuff. So for people who are like, I don't get the chain of command, it protects people underneath you from times when we're inappropriately sharing feelings or information that will scare them. Um, And by the way, just a reminder that no matter what kind of industry you're in, we just, as of this morning, hit 3.9% unemployment. If your people don't think you're going somewhere good now, if your people think you're hesitant, if your th- people think your company is in trouble, you're going to get down to just having your worst employees because, believe me, somebody else out there wants your best ones. And, you know, I never do I never do sales pitches on this thing. Um, but if, if, you, if you're struggling with 3.9, and a lot of organizations are, um, it's going to be it's going to be something that I can help your organization sort through. How do you find and keep um, the best people regardless of generation? And so um, I got a series of videos called How to Cut Your Generation on Turnover and Half on PeopleDrivenResults.com. They're free, but now that it's 3.9, it really is um, it really is a big deal. And most organizations are going to need help at what they do with that. Anyway. Um, um, it, it's a great, it's a great stat, Seth. So let me, let me throw in one more thing. Why, why gonna... were you thinking about quitting and why are you not going to quit? Okay. Let me, let me throw in one more stat on you. Cause I got to pump you up a bit more. Um, I 
do you want to say that most of the clients that I work with, it costs them about $60,000 to recruit a white collar employee. Uh, and it's definitely cheaper to have Hayden come in and fix why they're leaving um, than to pay the recruitment costs. Headhunters are really expensive right now because everyone well, and it's definitely goals. cheaper. It's definitely cheaper to figure out if you need to let them go. So um, nobody is healthy if it only retains and never releases. And so many organizations I work with ought to release a few people, but they're worried about the cost of retention and they need to worry about the cost of keeping people who are actually getting in the way of where they want to go next. So on both ends of things, it gets expensive and then even more expensive. Okay, so why I wanted to quit. Actually, I think this is going to be a future episode different from this. Um, you know, so I am currently uh, without health insurance uh, because I went out on my own and I, it, it's just been cheaper to pay the penalty than to have health insurance because when you buy it self-employed, um, I mean, you're ba you basically still don't have health insurance unless something really bad happens, right? Um, and so I don't have health insurance. If I had health insurance, I definitely would go to therapy for my feelings about the business, for my relationship with the business um, as I'm figuring out how to be okay with that. Uh, and you might think that's crazy if you've never went out and worked for yourself, uh, but there's just so much uncertainty. There's so many different ways you can go. And every decision that you make, even when you close a sale, when something great happens, it means you're not doing something else. Um, and I eventually got it in my head that other people um, were able to keep all the balls in the air where I was dropping them. And then I hung out with one of my closest friends on Tuesday night. Um, you know, I, I impromptu drove back from Indianapolis from some client work. And he's fortunately the kind of guy where you can show up at 10 p.m., eat whatever's in his fridge uh, and stay up till 1 a.m. hanging out. And it's fine. And, you know, he just told me straight up. He's like, you know, I signed a lease on a new retail space and the city that it's in um, jerked me around on, um, on, uh, you know, getting the build out done. And now I'm in a situation where I'm paying $10,000 a month in rent on a business that isn't even there yet. And I was like, Oh, well, I haven't made $10,000 mistakes yet. And the reason you make $10,000 mistakes is because the business is grown to the place where you, you know, there's that much revenue to lose. And so that was really a big game changer for me. I had convinced myself that, you know, I had certain weaknesses and that I, you know, they couldn't be overcome by delegating, outsourcing, stuff like that. And I was just like, so it was probably just going to kill me anyway. And I'm working 80 hours a week. And why am I working? And even though I'm, you know, uh, I can get my salary up to more than it was at a day job. Why would I work 80 hours a week if this can't ever scale? If this can't really grow anywhere? All I, you know, sure, I'm making more money, but I'm also working twice as much. So I'm making quite a bit less per hour. So why would I do this when I got a kid on the way and I, you know, I'm exhausted all the time? Friends, I just want to stop right here and say, Seth, power heard has just summarized the entrepreneur's dilemma um, in uh, perfectly. I don't know that I could add anything to what he just said. So if a person's been an entrepreneur or gone out on their own, they are going to have eventually this crisis of faith. It's too dependent on me, but I don't have money to pay somebody else to do it. And then I get a bunch of work and then I delegate it out. But there are certain things, well, wait, this isn't working. And almost everybody knows their flaws. They know their weak sides. And so, but when they're a single entrepreneur, they're having to do the weak side part of the job all the time, and that takes a lot of time. And um, it, this part sucks. It does. It does. And then what I realized was that I can quit at any time, 
I mean, if this truly just mentally breaks me, the economy's great. There's always another job. Um, but it, if I'm close to getting to the next level, um, and this is this is like Monday, Tuesday. I'm just like, and I I told my wife multiple times I quit, and she's like, you don't quit. She's like, you're not quitting right now. And I'm like, but I quit. And she's like, you just had your second best month. Why? And I was like, I know, but it's not going to get any better than this. And so I was ready to quit by Monday. Um, yesterday, I got one of the best leads I've had. And I basically closed another sale um, from somebody who called me off of a referral that I hadn't even talked to in years, um, which changes the whole trajectory of the business and how much... Um, you know, outside help that I can bring in through freelancers to take pressure off of me so that I don't die and also that I can go make more sales. So I was literally 72 hours away from everything changing. And I, I seriously, if I was single, I might've just been like, I might've just deleted the website and said, I'm done. I'm going to finish out some client work for a couple months while I look for a job. I was that close. Um, and I, that was total gut instinct because I lean really heavily on the gut instinct side. Almost all creative people do. Almost all creative people do. It was fascinating to me to work for Crown Golf oh, 15 years ago. And I, I learned one of the metaphors I use all the time in training and in coaching. Um, so back in those days, Michael Jordan was still playing for the Bulls. And I was sitting next to, on the bus to the Bulls game, I was sitting next to a guy who was who had played on the pro circuit he still played for the U.S. Open in the, uh, you know, kind of in the um, older league. I forget what they call it. Yeah, but, the, uh, like PGA Masters League or something. Yeah, like PGA that, Masters. Yeah. He was one of the top four rated golf coaches and golf coaches in the country. So, you know, people out in, he's retired now, but people out would go to Aspen. Movie stars, sports players would pay him to give them lessons. So I said, you know, you have taught lessons to a lot of sports players. Can Michael Jordan retire from basketball and make it as a pro golf player? He said, not a chance. I said, why not? He said, it's how you get yourself into the game. He said, anybody who has, through their entire lifetime, developed incredible skills of pulling energy through their emotions can't contain that energy when they golf. He said, the way they contain the energy is... They get themselves psyched up in a game, and then they burn it off by running harder, by playing better. They've got a place to burn the energy. He said, golf, you move your you move your wrist to putt, and then you walk. And all you can do is think about how you just screwed up the last three shots. All that emotional energy that football players, basketball players um, use to get into, soccer players use to get into the game, kills you in baseball and golf because you don't have enough muscle movement to burn off the emotion. So if you get yourself to a different level through emotion, it will kill you in games that don't have a lot of physical energy and you have to get yourself into by calming your brain. You calm your emotions in golf to play better. You rev your emotions to play better in basketball. Anybody who remembers Michael Jordan, he was classic. The Bulls would be losing to the Raptors, the worst team in the league, and somebody would insult him, and then he would go to a whole nother level and score 20 points in the next 10 minutes. And so he either, or they'd lose because he could never get himself revved up in the game. They'd lose to the worst team in the league because Michael Jordan never showed up because there wasn't any emotion in the game with it. And so people who are creative or people who get into the game through their emotions, um, and they're probably half the population does it that way. 
the challenge is they think their emotions are their true self. I got to be my, uh, I got to, I got to be, I got to live my truth. Well, your truth just changed three times because your truth was based on your emotions. And uh, that's the most dangerous thing for people who get themselves into the game through emotions. Anyway, I'm done with that little tears, Seth. No, I think that's legit. I think that wherever you're coming into that at, uh, um, <clears throat> nobody wants to work for a hyper emotional leader that's up one day and down the next. And, you know, if that's your manager, I mean, your people are, are tiptoeing around you, whether or not you realize it. So at some point, you just got to be. Um, the steady old school World War II sergeant who's just marching forward no matter what you know what the war throws at you, in my opinion. Uh, Seth, I couldn't agree more on that. And I was even talking about a different thing as well, another angle to it, which is how you make decisions. If you're making decisions that are emotional and not just having mood swings, but if you're making decisions that seem emotional, um, at first, people are going to be like, wow, what a brilliant person. They're so intuitive. They're so they're so creative. And then after a while, they're going to go, I thought we just killed about 3,000 soldiers over in this battle, and now we're marching exactly to where we were two months ago. The people up there are lunatics and don't know what they're doing. And so they're making emotional decisions rather than rational decisions. And that will get you. The actually, emotional intelligence-wise, we're talking now about what, you know, everybody thinks emotional intelligence is about your interpersonal skills, but we're really looking at what an emotional intelligence is called intrapersonal skills, how we deal with our own emotions and how we use them or don't use them well in moving forward. And in Seth's case, and we talked about it when we were talking about work-life balance. In Seth's case, when you're doing what it takes to just make the sales when you move your first year into a new business on your own, you know, you're working a huge number of hours. And work-life balance sounds great, but then you panic and you're like, all right, I'm just gonna do a little more work. I'm just gonna do a little more work. And uh, so there are times when um, you just gotta say, nope, I'm gonna play video games for the next seven hours, like you mentioned on that podcast. Or there are times when you're like, I'm just gonna have to have a day when I don't work. Yeah. And the research shows that even no matter what state you are financially or in a new business, taking a day when you don't do anything, makes you so much more productive the rest of the time that you lose money anytime you work seven days a week. That is one of the hardest decision. One of the hardest things I've I've tried to stick to and have not always done a good job um, because it was always like, well, I'll just get a couple hours, I'll just get an hour, I'll get three hours, and three hours turns into eight hours every time. Um, which is and why still three hours turn into eight hours? Why, when you haven't taken a day off in two weeks, does three hours turn into eight hours? Because I missed a free throw in my senior year of high school. Um, let me unpack that. <laughs> so I, um, you know, I, I've always been pretty driven, um, you know, valedictorian, full scholarship, my first year of college, um, you know, college sports, and also jammed a bunch of other things in there from, you know, uh, competitive speech to yearbook to, I, I pretty much thought you had to do all the stuff. Uh, and I took a bunch of classes because the guidance counselor pretty much threatened me that if I didn't have chemistry and pre-calc, you know, nobody would ever want me in life for any job or or uh, college. All right. So uh, I was actually dead on perfect for the first half of my senior year of high school basketball uh, and free throws. So I hit all of them. Came back from Christmas break, probably just, you know, a little bit of mechanics being off. I missed um, one and then I missed like 25 in a row. 
And the story I told so you myself went from not missing a free throw to missing 25 free throws. Yes. The story I told myself is had I just shot a little more over the summer where I was taking, you know, three, 400 shots a day. Well, if that just would have been 425 shots a day. I wouldn't have missed that shot. And now I have to live with this forever because last summer I didn't do quite enough. And I probably, I, mean, it's, I think it's pretty foundational my whole adult life. I've always thought, well, if I don't do this, then I will live in regret that I didn't do quite enough. And it actually works against me. Oh, this is this makes so much sense. And sadly, this is where we're alike. I'm the kind of person who can get their performance up through emotion. And then it will burn me in three or four different ways. And um, one of them is to work, to think that I just need to work a little more and then we'll get there. And once I work a little more, we'll get at the place where I don't have to work as much anymore. And that is the enemy of scaling. To go back to your earlier to your earlier fear, this is unscalable. Well, it is. Because when you think about it, if I got that next piece of business by working more, that means that the next time I'm in a, in a hole, I got to get the next piece of business by working more. And then I'm in a hole again because, and then suddenly the logic of us kicks in and goes, oh, wait, I'm in a... I'm in a death loop here. The only way for me to ever, because I think in my mind, if I just do this extra work, I'll get to the place where I don't have to do this anymore. Life will get back to normal. But it's actually an irrational thought because whatever I'm doing, it's not working. And the only way for me to make it work is to do more. Then I'm in a death loop. And so rationally, the rational part eventually catch up with our emotions and we go, wait, there's no way out of this. And so then we want to quit because the rational part has now grabbed our emotions and thrown them down and said, you're done. You're in a loop here. And so uh, we, we, we get rational enough to get it. And the only thought we have is to get out because we know if we work harder, we can get there. But we, we worked as hard as we can and we don't want to do it anymore. You know, and I, I definitely um, I bought into a couple of myths that probably aren't completely true. Uh, one of them is the amount that my grandparents and um, the, a lot of the refugees from Laos that I grew up around worked. Uh, and my mom finally said to me, you know, that, you know, your grandparents, great aunts and uncles were farmers. And some days it rained and they did nothing all day because there was nothing to do. It was pouring down rain. There was no way work could get done. She's like, you don't ever have that. There is no day where it's raining where you can't work because you're working indoors on a laptop or making, you know, sales calls or whatever. Uh, and the other thing was that I just heavily bought into the myths of Mark Cuban and uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who both claimed that basically they took like five days off in their whole 20s. And that's why they're super rich. Um, and that's probably not true. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it is. That's not the reason they're rich. Um, the reason they're rich is they come up, they came up with an idea that the market wanted and they were able to sell enough to scale. And they were, they were smart enough to get out of their own way when it was time to scale, but they still worked a huge number of hours in order to get there. And, you know, that's the age old question. Can an artist, you know, you came out of the music industry, can an artist be an amazing without being mentally ill or wildly dysfunctional? Or is the is the uh, Van Gogh, the mentally ill artist, really, the, well, Van Gogh's a bad example because he killed himself. But um, is the, is the <laughs> artist with the really emotional fast. problems, you know, Hemingway, he was an example of self-actualization. Even in high school psychology class, I was like, 
didn't he shoot himself? I don't want to be self-actualized. Back me off one notch of full self-actualization if you shoot yourself when you hit it. Anyway, so the, uh, the, 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 the kind of the bottom line with this is uh, this big debate of could those two guys have made it if they hadn't have worked those hours? I would argue for sure they just got themselves. You can watch Mark Cuban on Shark Tank. He gets excited with the product or he's not when he's in his reflective mode. But when he's you can tell when he's willing to offer a lot more money because his whole face lights up. Mark Cuban gets into the game through his emotions and you can watch him with the Mavericks more than any place else. He gets himself charged up and has no place to go when he's mad or happy with the Mavericks. And then he says stuff that gets him penalized. And also he gets no onto the court. I mean, he's the only owner, I think, in the history of the NBA that walks out on the court and screams at the refs, um, which has cost him a lot of money in his career. But the point he gets himself in the game, he gets himself in emotionally and then doesn't have any place to go with emotion. People who get themselves motivated emotionally will then work gas number of hours and you you listen to Gary Vanderchuk and crushing it is even an emotional thing uh, crushing but they get a book called the e-myth you know revised edition and the e-myth is all about being a thinking person's way to scale now it works great for franchises and it works great for replicable businesses and it would have some things that would really apply to your business but the e-myth is like Let's break this down into processes and think this through. And so you get a guy like Jeff Walker who teaches people how to do online courses. Everything Jeff Walker does is about scale this, here's a process, do this next. And so you got a whole, he's really kind of a mellow guy. And even when he's all charged up, so I've seen his events live, even when Jeff Walker's all charged up, he's still pretty mellow for a charged guy. Even admits I, I put on dance music up front because I want to get everybody charged up because I'm I can be kind of mellow. And even when he dances, he just again, dances in kind of a dorky old man way. And um, he even admits it. And so that's his kind of approach to it. So those two guys were probably great examples. But most of us are attracted to the charismatic kind of leader who tends to get themselves in the game emotionally rather than the kind of logical, more thoughtful kind of leader who doesn't necessarily get themselves in the game emotionally, but but thinks it through a little more. Both are valid. You got to figure out your decision making style and approach, and not let emotions take it away from you. This is sort of like the conflict episode and the politics episode in that we can't give you the listicle at the end um, of you know steps one through seven on how to co- course correct for where you're um, where you're at on the spectrum. You just have to be aware of what, you know, here to here is and where you're at on on the scale and be ready to think about where your weaknesses are at. Um, let's go out on two questions um, because we're. Well, no, we're let me give you let me give yes. you three things that a person needs to know. Oh, you do have a list. So okay. Let me give you some steppy stuff then. Um, first, you got to know where you are on that spectrum. Secondly, when you're tired or have alcohol, this is a bad time to make a major life decision. And so most people just need more sleep. Um, And then they need to make sense of it. If you're religious, um, the best way to get rest and reflection is to be involved in religious activities. Now, there's a huge amount of research around this. One of the things that mindfulness training has done in businesses, mindfulness is a really hot thing. One of the things that mindfulness training has done is the kind of, uh, it's brought business the same kind of mental neurological impact that slowing down and reflective meditative prayer does. So if you're religious, and I know some of the people who listen to this podcast are, because Seth and I both are, then you, then um, um, 
You need just to slow down. You need to get into organized religious practices. Uh, uh, organized religion is one of the absolute best stress reducers that's been identified in the research. It calms mental illness. It, it causes smoking cessation. It keeps people from making rash decisions. So literally, organized religious worship is one of government research discovered it's one of the best things you can do to make better decisions. How's that for crazy? <laughs> and doing something, if you're not an organized religion, doing something specifically spiritual that calms all that down is a major impact. Then if you're an entrepreneurial person, you've got to get a team around you so that you don't. So Seth called me. He goes, I'm going to quit. Let's give this two more months and I'm going to quit. I knew he was just tired because he's doing a side hustle while he builds his business. And because the man is a farmer, if he can keep doing his side hustle a little more, he, the, he starts hitting numbers that people who are supposed to be doing the side hustle full time get to hit, but he can't help himself. So he has to hit the bonus numbers. And so he his, he's working too many hours, four hours sleep makes everybody dumb. And so I knew that I just needed to give him a chance to listen to his wife and slow down. You gotta have a team around you. Nobody can be entrepreneurial without a team of people who will talk to. So Seth talks to me, I call him, we chat, then they close down my stupid exit. Hey, if you're the state of Illinois and you're um, uh, Illinois Department of Transportation, give a little heads up and just put a little detour route when you close down the entrance to a major interstate when I have a flight to catch. I'm still bitter. Okay. So I said, Seth, love you, man, but I gotta figure out how I'm gonna not miss my plane um, which this week I took the last one out. And of course I know better. Um, cause you never know what crazy things are going to happen. So I, you know, I was like, Oh, I'm not here to talk to. And so it's great. Seth finds a friend. The friend goes, dude, I can pay him 10,000 a month. Cause I got screwed. Oh, it happens to everybody. You begin to chill out. You go get some sleep day a week, day a week. Okay. Last two questions. So that's really good stuff. Number one, um, I can think of an organization right now that I believe you've said um, they are so analytical that they're going to make sure they go out of business exactly according to plan. Sorry, uh, I tried to turn the ringer off on my uh, home phone. Okay. <laughs> no, actually, it wasn't you that said that. That was um, uh, there was a book called Predictable Success that does the stages of business. Um, and the last one's called like the death cough, the death spiral. And it's when you've got um, the bean counters and they're, hey, I, I need a bean counter. Um, I need more that's bean counter in my that's yes, the that's other what side I need. Of yes. It. But when it's all that, um, you have a business that's going out of going out of business um, exactly according to plan. They're going to follow their exact schedule until they shut their doors. And I actually actually think of a couple businesses like this where I'm like, my gosh, you guys. Uh, I mean, how can you not see that not taking any risks and you know not having a little bit of you know daring is what's going to kill you, and you're just dying slowly year over year. Um, you know, how do those people get to be a little bit more like me? Oh yeah. Cause that's, that's what you see more often when you get out of entrepreneurs and into corporate entrepreneurs by definition have to absorb a huge amount of risk and keep going. Corporations exist to minimize risk. Yeah. Therefore, when a person comes along suggesting risky things, once again, back to your question earlier of what about a project that your boss loves that everybody else thinks is dumb, um, 
Corporations have a thousand ways for employees to put on the brakes and to stop a project they think is dumb. And sometimes that's a good thing because an entrepreneur will, will go out of business if they have a dumb idea. I was just talking to a guy. They started a, a, a kind of a LinkedIn for a different part of the world, and it just the Great Recession hit, and half of them went out of business. It was a bad idea. Looking back on it, you can see, oh, we got into the dot-com boom. It was a bad idea. So in other words, if you're an entrepreneur and you take on a huge amount of risk and it's a bad idea, how many people get into the game like Gary Vanderchuk and Mark Cuban but had bad ideas or bad execution and aren't Gary Vanderchuk and aren't Mark Cuban? There are far more of those that failed than they did. So the point of it is large corporations try to protect against creative people who just have a gut feel but don't have a good business strategy. Problem is you get a bunch of analytical people who get themselves into the game by thoughtfulness and they need another chart and they need another study and they need another consultant. And I love it what one I love it what a mentor of mine said. They're always preparing to prepare. <laughs> They're getting prepared to prepare. And um, um, those are the people in our political episode that or there are or office politics episode that make people crazy. Because our current president could not be accused of preparing to prepare. Our current president is an entrepreneur who makes decisions based on his gut in an atmosphere that scares all your allies. So whatever you think of his politics, pro or con, his style is definitely entrepreneur and driven from emotions. And so as somebody in his inner circle said, um, the president's much like the weather. If you don't like it, give it a couple of days because it'll change. And so he's got his own challenges of working in the most bureaucratic organization in the world while trying to run it as an emotionally based entrepreneur who uses Twitter to go directly to the population. It is such a shock to the system for that and other world governments that, um, you know, he's earned himself the spot at the, you know, the bottom of the uh, of the ratings of presidents just because of his style and compatibilities. And so it's a great example of what happens when you get somebody whose style is so different than the system they're working in. Whether you like his politics or not, I'm not making a partisan statement. I'm simply describing the style selections that motivate our, our current president. The last one was such a contrast. People often go, oh, I miss Obama. Like read a read a best-selling book by uh, somebody who used to run the CIA, and it's I miss Obama so much, and it's basically I miss his style, I miss his thoughtfulness, I miss the rational way we play golf and we make decisions, as opposed to the basketball way we get ourselves charged up, and uh, make decisions. And so, point of it is, large corporations, they need to make a space for some people, and they only do best with intrapreneurs, not entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are able to answer the questions thinking people need and still push entrepreneurially for new ideas. And um, um, many organizations just run those folks out because they just get tired of fighting the battles. Um, yes, I, I would say yes to all those things. I, so it's entrepreneur, I'm, not entrepreneur inside of organizations. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I could add some more here. I'm not going to because I don't want to torch some relationships uh, because I actually listen somewhat. <laughs> I listened somewhat uh, to uh, you on the last couple episodes, and also I've already torched one major relationship in the last seven days, so that's probably enough, a business relationship. Um, let, let's go out on. But you uh, didn't do it on purpose. That was you. You just were. Uh, you just. You did not torch it on intentionally. 
It's one of those things that happens as you go about your day and somebody didn't like something you did. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I, I would say that uh, that's actually a win, even though I think from the outside, um, when that, that particular project wraps up, people are going to think it's a loss. Um, I count it as a pretty huge win. Um, let's go out on... But you don't do... You're not a Flay Slayer. I wore this because this uh, this uh, barbecue place beat Bobby Flay. Oh. So I, I'm just celebrating on a Friday, good barbecue, <laughs> and the Flay Slayer. Who knew that it would... Who knew that uh, it would be the appropriate topic for today. By the way, um, Hayden and I are going to have our first meetup sometime in the next uh, couple of months. Actually, we're going to do a live podcast episode, do uh, some Q&A out in the southwest suburbs uh, in uh, that uh, Wooden Paddle Pizza, which is something that we both love. So when they're open, uh, we're going to be doing that probably on a Friday. Uh, we're going to be locking that down. But eventually, we may have to do some kind of live podcast episode somewhere at a barbecue restaurant because we're both such um, such big fans. Um, but seriously, if you're out in the burbs or you're in the city, you want to do a little networking. Uh, very curious to see. Um, we have so many different kinds of people to listen to podcasts, and a lot of them are you know, national audience, but we've, we've got a fair number of people around here. So I'm, I'm curious to see what goes down on this thing. We'll let you know when we got a date. Um, let's, can we close on this, this, this topic? Um, you work for somebody that's either way too emotional or way too analytical. Uh, and you are handed a project that, uh, this is probably also going to get into the next episode of why project launch la- projects launch late. Um, you're handed a project that is doomed. Um, or at least has a very unlikely chance of succeeding. Um, how do you approach that person knowing that they're either, you know, pretty emotional or pretty analytical? Sir, I'm not even going to answer it. We'll do that in the next episode. <laughs> that is, uh, because that's why half of all, half of all projects that fail, fail because the project had no hope for a bunch of different reasons. And um, no hope. It didn't. Ha- it may have been a good idea, but that project had no hope. And so, knowing you got to first know if that project has hope. And if it doesn't, um, you, there's a couple of different options you have in the real world. What a great question about how do you how do you make things work in the real world rather than the world of theory. And um, that'd be a great one to uh, to work on in the next episode. Okay, we will be back next week. Uh, just as we wrap this thing up, you might notice the Consultant of the Millennial is growing along with uh, some other podcasts that I'm involved in. And podcasting is one of those things that my company does. If you want help uh, to, to get a he proven plan. He does it plan, really well. I, go, I show up and he runs everything else. And um, he does it really well, I will say. it's I can get you from rough concepts to 10,000 downloads in the first three months on a proven plan. Your people you need to reach are not always going to sit down and read Twitter. They're not always going to sit down and read a blog. Um, webinars are getting tougher and tougher to do because it, it requires people to be live at a specific time. What you want is to be able to reach the people you need to reach when they're in the car, when they're throwing some laundry in the washing machine, um, when they don't have to focus all of their time on you. And that's where ideas and concepts and sales happen. You can go to digitalprofitfarm.com and click on the podcast section uh, to get rolling right there. Uh, and uh, voice has never gone away. It used to be radio, TV, newspaper. Now it's YouTube, podcast, blogging. Um, it's always going to be video, voice, and text. And probably uh, the podcast thing is the hardest one for you to start without help. PeopleDrivenResults.com, uh, by the way, is Hayden's website, and DigitalProfitFarm.com is mine. We've 
raised several questions here that we each love to uh, help you with. By the and just as a closing note, uh, the consultant and the millennial, you can search that and get into the Facebook group and uh, grow alongside like-minded people that are trying to do the same kind of stuff you are. This is the podcast. Man, that was a bad line, but there we go. We're out. <laughs> I'm going to hang up.